Welcome to Into the Mythic. I'm Leanne O'Donnell and I'm here with Polo Coleman on the southwest coast of Ireland. In this series, we're trying to approach some very old stories with fresh ears to get back to the beating heart of Ireland's ancient storytelling tradition. Today's story is about an unlikely meeting between a female mystic and a celibate monk. It takes place 1600 years ago in the early days of Irish Christianity, which is a fascinating time in Irish storytelling history because there's a fusion of the ancient indigenous narratives with the incoming Christian stories that had spread from the Middle East across Europe and all the way to this small island on the edge of the Atlantic. It turns out this is a particularly interesting story to explore because underneath the fairly simple story that was written down by the Christian monks, there are some flickers of an even older, more complex narrative. So, Paul, tell me the story that you're going to tell me today. You can set it up for me. Yes. Tell me, who, who is it about? Well, we're going to talk about a very interesting woman about whom we don't know an awful lot, whose name was Conora. Sometimes she's called Dochanara because that's the Do or the Mochanara. They're uh, kind of terms of, of endearment that are put before a name. Uh, and then th- there are variations, uh, anglicised variations of her name, Conora. Uh, but she was from Bantry and she was an anchorite, or to be more correct, an anchoress. Uh, and the anchorites were um, people who were, they were hermits, but more than that, they took a vow to stay in one particular place, like within within a cell, within a room, within a cave. Uh, and they would spend their lives there uh, to be closer to their their thoughts, to prayer, to God. Uh, and they, they fasted and uh, mortified their flesh and lived very Spartan ascetic lives. And what's the idea behind that? The idea is, I suppose, that if you stay in one place, you there are no distractions exactly, from you yes. and your channel to God. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there were once called uh, stylites uh, from the Latin stylus because they lived on top of, of towers or poles. Uh, the most famous is uh, Simeon, who spent something like 50 years up, 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 up a pole. And so many people came uh, to be, you know, to, to, to see him, but also to pray with him or to learn from him that he, he, uh, he actually had his, his pole or his tower. It was probably more like a, a round tower. He had it raised another 30 foot or something so that he was further away from the tumult and the, the noise of all these people coming to, to be with him. The spread of the, of the Christian church from, you know, what we call the Holy Land. Uh, it, it spread out you, with these kind of hermits going off into what, uh, you know, into the desert. Now, desert in those days meant a different thing. It's not, it wasn't just the hot, sandy place. It, it, was, it was leaving, you know, deserting, going in the same route as that, that, that verb. So you were leaving everything. So you left everything and you went out to somewhere quiet. Um, and they, so they'd go there, they'd live the life of a hermit, praying, fasting. And then gradually, as time went by, people would come, acolytes would come, sit at their feet, kneel at their feet, learn from them, pray with them. And then when they reached a sort of critical mass of numbers, uh, they would spread out. So, so the church spread in that kind of way. So when you read about anchorites and anchoresses, the females of the species, um, it usually talks about much later because that's when, when they were around in in Europe. Mm-hmm. But in Ireland, from, from the early stages, they were they were there. And in this fifth uh, and sixth century that we're talking about today, they were they were quite common. So Mokyanara yeah. um, was was an anchorite. She, she was an anchoress. Yes, yeah. An anchoress. Sorry. Um, she she was 
she was born in the middle of the 5th century. We're not sure of the date of her birth, but, but born near Bantry, they think, because that's where she was. And she stayed uh, for, for all of her life, except for her death. Um, and she was there, she, but she was widely known and people came from far and near to, to pray with her and to be with her and to see her and so on. Um, now, when, she, when it came to her uh, impending death in 530, 530 AD, she she wanted to have experienced her resurrection, as she called it. So her death and going to heaven, I suppose, but her resurrection, she wanted to be in a very holy place. So she prayed for guidance on that and she had dreams and visions and she saw uh, Ireland, the map of Ireland, if you like, spread out before her. And from every holy place, and of course there were many uh, monasteries all around the country, uh, great shafts of, of, of light were emanating, but the strongest came from Inishkahag, uh, which is now called Scattery Island, which is in the mouth of the Shannon, in the very wide uh, estuary of the Shannon. So she went there to to die, really, and have her resurrection there. It's an interesting idea that she was in this one place for all her life, and then even the notion of a map. You <laughs> yes. know, it's quite an interesting idea in the 5th century, the yes, century yeah, that yeah. you would have a visual of all of Ireland and be drawn to one particular place. Yeah. And when we say she went, how did she, she even walked, get there? She walked. She just set off. And, uh, you know, you're familiar, our listeners may not be, but the, the terrain between here and, and, and Scattery Island in Inishkaig is very varied and very rough, uh, particularly at the start. You're going over the Caja Mountains and then you're, you're over the valley and you're into, into Kerry. And then you have to go over those mountains and then over the Dingle, the, the, the mountains at the, on the spine of the Dingle Peninsula, the Shleave Mish. And then you have to go, you have to cross the Shannon. And it, it, it seems that the story goes uh, that when she reached the Shannon and all the time she was guided by this light. So it's, it's almost 200 kilometres. And she was guided by this great light, this great shaft of, of, of light, tower because of light. Because there were certainly no road signs. No, exactly. And it would have been heavily forested. Oh, heavily forested, yes, yeah. And going through all kinds of of clan territories and so on. And in fact, that's another aspect of it, because in those days, the only people who were free to, to travel or who could travel freely, who could travel safely and, and freely were the legal people uh, and clerics and the bard, the bardic class. So anyone else would be challenged, would probably be imprisoned or fought or else they'd come with a retinue and they'd be greeted. So if you just turned up in somebody else's territory and you didn't fit into one of those categories, you'd have a good bit of explaining to do. Absolutely. Yeah. You'd have no right to be there. But she, as a holy person... Yeah, she she would pass through and they would respect that. So she walked the the entire way. Uh, The entire way, I say, because if the story goes that when she reached north, the shore, uh, well, the southern shore in North Kerry of the Shannon Estuary, she just continued walking because she didn't have a boat. So she walked right across the water and she came to the shore of Inishkaha Island. And now to be sceptical, is it ever so tidal that it would be low enough to do that? Never, no, never, never. Yes, yeah. So she actually walked across the water in the story. She walked across the water. Now, before we get to her meeting with with, uh, Senan, who was the the monk there, we need to give a a bit of background about him and about about the island. Senan was born in in County Clare, uh, so very close to the shoreline of of where where Inishkaha was, so he would have been familiar with the place. Uh, Before he was born, it was predicted that he'd be a very holy person. And when his mother was walking through a woodland, she had her first uh, pang, her first pain, a birth pang, and she gripped a branch of a tree uh, for, for support and to brace herself, and the branch immediately burst into blossom. 
so they knew he was going to be very, very holy. Mm. So he was given the name then Senan, which means uh, kind of old wise man. So kind of a, a Senex. Uh, and when he was a boy, there were other feats as well attributed to him. He, he used to be sent off to, to bring the cows out and back. And one time he had to come back. He, he got caught up in his prayers and he was late and he missed the tide because where he was living there was a tidal inlet and he couldn't get the cows across and he would have had to have waited about six hours I suppose before the tide came in fully and went out enough to cross uh, and while he was there suddenly the the waters parted and he was able to drive them home so he made it home so as a boy then well as a man he he then he headed off so he had the calling to religious life and and can I just say before we move on too quickly, that what's interesting about those signs of his holiness is that they relate to the natural world. Oh, yes. They're always connected in, in that way, in, in, in the Irish uh, mythological church, if you like. Uh, so then he when, he, when he was older, he went off to Rome. He travelled far and wide and he went to Rome. And on his way back, he came through Gaul and he founded a monastery in Gaul. And then he landed in uh, crossed over to England, um, uh, or what we now call England, and he moved through there and he founded a couple of monasteries, one major one in Con- in uh, Cornwall, and then up through Wales and he founded a monastery there. And then he came back to Ireland and in Wexford he founded a monastery. Um, and then eventually he made his way back to his native County Clare. And the local people told him about this monster. Now, he would have been familiar with this monster f- from his childhood uh, because it had been rampaging for a long, long time and it was called a cahach, uh, which means kind of a battler. And it lived out on Inish Cahach, so or Inish Cahig, uh, which is the Irish name, the original name for the island, Scattery. So he went out there to sort this out and uh, because his calling was to build his monastery there. Uh, they're, they're, all, he was, they're always drawn in, the, in, in these stories to a particular place. So he was drawn here, despite all his travels and all his foundations of monasteries, he was drawn back to Inishkaig. So he went out there and he banished the monster. And this is very, very typical part of, of the stories of, of a lot of the Irish saints, uh, like um, Kevin in Glendalough and Finbar in Cork and lots of others. They, they fight with a monster or a serpent or a snake and presumably this is their battle with themselves, but also overcoming the, the earlier religion mm. um, signified by uh, the serpent. And interest, interestingly enough, as we were saying about uh, the, the laws and legal and not, not killing, um, you know, not, not killing as a punishment, they never kill these monsters or beasts. They always just uh, banish them. So they, they wriggle off into the sea and swim away. And they usually come to a bad end, but not, but not by the hand of the saint. Mm, very interesting. And it's interesting how the, the serpent or the snake is a recurring theme throughout world mythology. Yes, isn't it? For an island as well that, that never had snakes. So it's interesting that they... Or dragons, the, as far yes, as we yeah. know. Yeah. And, and uh, Inish, uh, or the Cahak was banished to, to a, a lake called uh, Dulok, the Black Lake. And he went there and... Um, Senan had told him that he wouldn't eat until that the snake would not eat uh, for a certain length of time so it didn't and it died of hunger oh. so it kind of had a hand in its own uh, end It's very interesting and I wonder how much of it is to do with a Judeo-Christian story say the Old Testament story of the snake being imposed on yeah, yeah. the the establishment of a monastery in Ireland or how much of it has to do with 
old indigenous stories. Yeah, it, it'd be nice to know that. It'd be it? nice to yeah. know. How would we find out? Yeah. <laughs> Get a time machine. Yeah. The next podcast. <laughs> yeah. Where we go back and find out, was there really it's... a serpent on the island? Yeah. So he banishes it and thereby clears the way for his... Christian monastery. Yes, and there are, to this day, there are the ruins of, of six churches there. So he founded a very substantial monastery. So he built his monastery. Yeah, and, and when Kianara had her vision of where she wants to die, that was the place. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it became it became a centre of holiness. And actually, people visited very famous, um, in, in, you know, apparently, in fact, according to the annals of monasteries, uh, uh, Kieran of Clonmacnoise came uh, and studied there. Uh, Brendan. Um, Saint, Bre- you know the 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 navigator Brendan from Clonfert in Kerry. He came there, um, and there is a story actually that the, when the three of them were there together, um, something appeared to them. Um, I think it was a a tree, and uh, a small a small tree, and they they were arguing or discussing as to who who it was for, and they all walked away from it. Uh, but it they took turns in walking away from it, and. When it, when when Senan walked away from it, it uh, it stopped flowering. So it was his. So it stayed there. There's a bit of a so all the lads were together in this place, isn't there? <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, and it was it was men only. He established this for uh, men only. Now uh, he also established a monastery on a nearby island for women only. Uh, so it's not necessarily that he was anti-women. It could have been that he liked them and he didn't want the distraction of women in the place. So so Inishkaha was for men. Uh, and the nearby island was uh, actually two other monasteries, one on the mainland and one on a nearby island, and they were for women. Mm. But he was keeping them separate. Just keeping in, them separate, yes. Just in yeah. case. Yeah. So how did Canara end up then? So then Canara arrives at the shore uh, of this island and he came down. Senan, of course, knew she'd come. So he went down to say, you can't, you can't come to this island. You're, you're, you're a woman. You know, it's, it's for men only. And she, she um, spoke to him. And one of the reasons we're talking about her today is because she was kind of one of the, the earliest known feminist or the, the person who made the earliest known feminist statement in the, in Ireland. And uh, when he said, you, you know, it's it's for men only, she said, Christ came to redeem women no less than men. No less did he suffer for the sake of women than for the sake of men. No less than men, women entered the, he- the heavenly kingdom. To which Sennon could only say, oh, yeah, you're right. So he, he relented uh, and he said, OK, but, you, you know, what do you want? And she said, well, I want to be buried here. And she, he said, well, the rules are too strict. You can't be buried on the island. And she said, no, I, I'll just stay here because she was standing on the foreshore in the intertidal zone. And she said, I'll just be buried here. And he said, but the, the sea will wash your know, grave away. And she said, we let God take care of that. And as it turned out, she was buried there on on the shoreline, just off the shore, and uh, they they erected a, a tomb over her, and there's a big flagstone there, and that flagstone is there today. Sailors know it. And she actually went on to become the patron saint of fishermen and seafarers, so they they sail by there. All the boats in that whole area, Kilrush and Kilkee and everywhere, they'll sail by there, and they all pick up a stone from that beach, a pebble, and they carry that on the boat as a, a charm to keep them safe. So they they really you know, Revere Connor. That's, a, that's quite an interesting end to her, her pilgrimage yes, towards yeah. her death, that she ended up then protecting all the, the sailors and the fishermen. Yeah, isn't it? But she was buried in what we would call, I suppose, the liminal space. Then. Exactly, yes. She, she didn't pass the tidal range. Yeah. To go back to her sort of statement that 
Christ came to redeem men and women. Was that a radical statement at the time? It must have been, really, because there's a lot of talk about the the Gaelic world not being anti-women and it wasn't anti-women in the way that the, the more recent modern world has been but there were certainly it was certainly very divided and it was it was based around a warrior elite so it was really men were, were the important ones now women had their had their power as well and they had their rights and uh, so so that's what, what gets uh, talked about but uh, you know you, you didn't generally have women chieftains I know there are some uh, exceptions but the point is, they are exceptions, mm. and pe- people like Grania Whale, uh, you know, Grania, uh, Grace O'Malley up in up in Mayo, she really probably only could do that, uh, not not just because she was brilliant and great and brave and all that, but that uh, the order was collapsing. So she, there was a, a space for her to do it. Maybe a hundred years before that, she would have been just brilliant, great, strong, and brave, and someone's wife. You know, mm. now she would have owned her own thing of course her own place and people women had their own rights to to property they could divorce if they wanted it was more class based than gender based you know once you're in a certain class it was very strictly class based um but if you were within a certain class you had you had all those rights of that class for you know for you for yourself mm. and then within the growing christian church in ireland you know it's not an egalitarian space either no, the, the, no. The, there's a male pope, and only priests can do the sacraments, and yes, yeah. and that was the same at the time. Not at that time in Ireland. No, no, that came that came much later. That came with the imposition of the Roman Church, the Romanized Church, that came really from you know it was it began growing uh, from about the sixth century, seventh century on the, the mainland, but it didn't affect here until about one thousand, give or take. So before that, it was very much the old Irish style of. Each each monastery was autonomous, so the abbot or abbess had equal power and equal status. So actually then, in the 5th century, Chanar arriving as a holy person wasn't necessarily subservient to Senan. No, no. No, she wasn't a mere woman or anything like that. She was just another another person. But in Ireland, that early Christianity, right up until certainly the the medieval period, say the 12th century or so, it remained very uniquely Irish, um, very much attached to the pre-Christian standards, beliefs, um, values as as well. And a lot of these saints, so-called saints, they were never formally uh, beatified by Rome, but but we call them saints. most of them are very uh, archetypal in in their in the you know they, they they kill they murder they do all kinds of things as well as being being holy people in quite often so that's a really interesting thing and it has already occurred in some of our conversations this crossover period between uh, the Christian church becoming really established in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church yes yeah and how that adapted and incorporated the existing beliefs in the population. Yes, yeah. And how if we're looking at it now, we can kind of thread back through yeah. and find some of the things that predate the Christianity, as you say, St. Bridget and St. Patrick and these people 
stepped into roles that were kind of in the collective consciousness already at the time. Exactly. And the monks um, who were writing this down and learning it, of course, as, 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 they, as they went along, because it was new here, and they, they weren't familiar, we, we weren't familiar with, with the older books, the Talmud, the, the Koran, the, you know, the older books that um, I suppose mainland Europe would have been generally familiar with. Uh, so they attempted to create an earlier connection to that. So they gave people like Patrick very Old Testament attributes uh, and they tried to bring in that kind of thing in order to make a link back because they felt the lack of that, even though there was a, a link just as old as, as anything, uh, but, it, but it wasn't back to that, to that starting point. So they sort of manufactured that a bit. And one of the things I find really interesting about this, it, and we've touched on it before as well, is the shift from the oral culture to the written culture. And the people who were writing it down, almost by definition, were already part of the new dominant culture. They yes, were they were yeah. the monks, they yeah. were within the Christian system. So any stories that we have that were written down have come through that filter. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're written by, by the monks. So partly what's interesting for us maybe is to try and see what little shadows and echoes and ghosts of something more ancient come through in those stories. Yes, yeah. And one very, very major aspect of early Irish Christianity, which was a bone of contention for a long time until until really about the 6th century, well, about the 6th century or so. And then there were certain, uh, there were various uh, synods and so on. And then the Irish church began to be come under the control of a more Romanized church uh, from that stage onwards. But... Um, it was that they, the monks, the, the Irish mindset couldn't accept uh, original sin, the notion of original sin. So they just came up with original, uh, like I've heard John O'Donoghue call it original blessing, but it was that kind of thing. They felt that you could not be born in sin. You had to be born blessed and then learn how to sin. Isn't that amazing? What a fundamental difference yeah. in an approach to yeah. morality and into and to the human spirit. It's, it's a massive, a massive mind change, really, isn't it? From from being born, we're all bad, we're all evil, we all have to be saved. Um, and another aspect, another kind of pleasing aspect to the early Christian Church in Ireland was they brought they introduced the notion of the sacrament of confession, where you confess your sins and you're forgiven. Uh, that was brought in by, by Irish monks. It hadn't existed before then. So they had the notion of an anamkara, uh, which is, uh, you know, someone who was your mentor, someone to whom you went to confide, to talk, to, and, and that became your, your father confessor. So confessor. So uh, that then became a standard uh, sacrament within the, the, the general Catholic Church. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. So the kind of in a way, the softer, more benign view of human nature and our place in the world is represented by this idea that you, there's forgiveness possible. You can unload yourself to your Anamkara, your soul friend, yes. your confessor. And that anyway, you were born good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you were born good. You were born blessed. And yeah. you could then get forgiveness for anything you'd done wrong. And go back to that state. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's beautiful. It is, yeah. That's really lovely. So something about the, the culture that early Christianity came into in Ireland already had those values embedded in it. How do we know this story? Where Where is the information coming from? These are, are written down. Uh, you know, there's the, the lives of the saints. Um, so you can you can find them. Senan was, was a very well-known saint. He was one of the 12 apostles of Ireland, they were called. 
and these were 12 uh, very holy men who, fa- who were founded either many or very important monasteries. There's a lot of writing about them. Yeah, so so they're 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 remembered and the connections and the various stories that are, that uh, are connected to them. So Kanner comes in through them yes, mostly. Yeah. yeah. Now it's it's a bit of a footnote, all right, because she wasn't a founder of a, of monasteries and a teacher in the way that Senan was. You know, he taught uh, Ciaran of Clonmacnoise, and that's one of the largest ever of the of of the foundations in Ireland. Mm. Even to this day the ruins of it are bigger than, than most places. Mm. So so they were important in that sense, in in a big sense, whereas hers was a a small but a very important life. What if we use the word legacy? There are these big legacies of architecture or of writing all across Europe by the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. But it's quite a legacy to have every fisherman and every yeah. sailor taking a stone from a beach. Yes, it is with a memory of your story and your holiness. Like that's a very tangible day-to-day enduring legacy of her life and her, inverted commas, holiness. Yes, yeah. Here, 1,600 years later, because she died there. Yeah. Hearing about these stories written down by men who were part of the new order of Christianity, I can't help wondering what parts of the stories were left out. What bits were emphasised to bolster the new belief systems and to promote the famous monks who built the big monasteries? And I wonder what flickers there might be behind the main narrative of some other truths. The kind of truths that often got pushed into the footnotes along with the female characters who left different kinds of legacies. And I'm left feeling almost frustrated that we don't know more about Kenner herself. But in a lovely twist of fate, it turns out there's more to come. Pole's friend, the poet James Harper, has written a poem which radically reimagines the meeting between Senan and Conair. This poem is by James Harper, who's one of our leading poets, a member of Aesthana. And he's written a lot of, he's very interested in that liminal space we've been speaking of. And he's a lot of poems about early Christian saints. Um, and he explores and mines that, that whole um, archetypal uh, aspect of of these saints, and actually, he and I have a have a book coming out later this year where I've done illustrations to these poems. But this one is Connor, Connor in the afterlife. We needed one another for salvation, but Senan didn't know that. Shrieked and wept when I rode out to his island in the Shannon, and he, wild-haired, half-nude, all dirty, he would have thrown me to the tide except he was too pure to touch a woman's body. In time, my love woke his, his deepened mine. We peeled each other's hearts to innocence. Naked to God, we shone like seraphim. And now I see my bones as white as any man's below the golden soil and smile content at Senan's daily softening grief like Adam's when he remembered Eve returning through the dusk, oblivious of the creeping shadow. Oh, I love that, Paul. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is, and actually it opens up a whole other avenue of thought around the story. Because there is that little pagan sexuality creeping in. Yes, yeah. A little pagan sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. sounds quite diminutive, but I don't mean that. I mean, within the story, as you told it, it is to Christian holy. And by holy, that means celibate. Yes. Yeah. And Senan is so celibate, he won't let any women on his island. Yeah. But that's quite a subversive reading of it. Yeah, and of course as well, it should be noted that in early Christianity, early Irish Christianity, uh, monks were allowed marry but they were they were only allowed one wife one husband at a time so they, terrible. they could marry more but you, you weren't any more would distract from your 
your primary <laughs> purpose. So, so that's why you have sons and daughters of these saints. It's not that they were fooling around, but that that was that was acceptable and normal until you know the, the Romanized Church took hold, and then it all went downhill. I think. So it's interesting that James Harper has written that poem because the the art of poetry, I suppose, is tuning into what's not said and what's, again, a little bit diaphanous and ephemeral. And his reading of that story is that there's a, a love story in the, in the middle yeah, of it. Yes, yeah. And it's quite beautifully put because you could read it on a number of levels. And her argument with him or her, uh, the, the argument she makes to allow him to, to, to be buried there and to receive communion from, from his hand, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a very strong intercourse as well. So, you know, I'm not sure if that's what James is referring to or if he's referring to all of them. It sounds like he's talking about peeling each other back to, on a human level, yeah. down, down to the human soul and body. It's really lovely. That's what I took from it, actually, from his poem. And in my illustration, as you'll see when the book comes out, uh, I've made them into one. So they both, they, they, they're one body and the two the two beings emerge from one body what i'm feeling now out of the poem and after what you've said is that maybe the story <laughs> is not about her going to the most holy place maybe she was going to the person to her soulmate yeah to the person she needed to meet to find her resurrection yeah her anamkara her anamkara <laughs> yeah. yeah maybe that's what was bringing her to that spot instead of any other spot yeah which is quite beautiful and maybe a bit more 21st century in terms of the romance of it. <laughs> but it, it's a beautiful notion. And maybe he could only meet her then. He couldn't let her on because he could only meet her in his liminal space as well. They both had to go into that middle space to yeah. meet. Yeah, that's true. That's really lovely. And what's interesting for me about it is that there's a, even in speaking about it, there's a tension between the idea of holiness and pilgrimage, and sainthood, and exactly what James Harper has done with his poem, which is romance and sexuality and intimate love between two people. It's very hard to reconcile the two in the same story. Yes. They become different stories, yes, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what Christianity kind of did. Exactly, because as we know from our other discussions and talks, it wasn't that way in the old, in old times here. They were all all part of the same thing. And interesting, as you say, that the monks could have, why? Well, they could they could marry, but they were only allowed to have one because more than one wife would be distracting. Yes. God bless yeah. them. Um, but that what we've what it evolved to was that in order to be holy, you had to have no wife. Yes. Or no husband. Yeah, and it was even I think it was even more cynical than that. I think by the time they banned marriage, it was so that the church the church's land wouldn't be split up among children of bishops and archbishops and cardinals and mm. so on. Because even in the 14th century, 15th century, to become a cardinal, you didn't have to be an ordained priest. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking just another little point about it all and the overview of it is that the serpent in a lot of the global mythology is thought to represent the sexual. Yes. You know, it can be seen. And the fact that Senan banished the serpent and Christianity is always banishing the snakes. Yeah. There is a theme here, I think, that's pretty obvious in how it's panned out about repressing sexuality. Yeah. And, and the pagan sexuality peeks through in the old stories 
true. Yeah. And in the poetry. Yeah. Mm. Long live poetry. Long live poetry. And there's a more ephemeral and radical notion of, of love and holiness in that poem than there is in the, in the story as it's just told where yes, yeah. it's all about the place and the vision and the prayer. Absolutely. And quite often, the more Christian some, uh, something gets, the more it loses the Christian values. Well, the human values, yes, certainly. Yeah. It becomes about up there and yeah. not down here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Paul. That was lovely. Thank you for sharing it with Fun me. Series. Into the Mythic is made possible by the generous support of Wild Goose Studios, a family-owned craft studio based in Kinsale, County Cork.